Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Open your fridge or your cupboard and you'll likely find vanilla somewhere. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Maybe a small bottle of vanilla essence, maybe artificial. Or maybe it's real with a label saying it's from Madagascar. Eric Jennings is a distinguished professor of French colonial history at the University of Toronto. Now imagine taking that vanilla product into your hand. Look at it. That everyday substance you're holding has a remarkable history, encompassing slavery, abolition. It's the narrative of the human and the orchid getting commodified and commercialized. Eric Jennings delivered the 2023 JHI Public Humanities at Large Lecture. Maybe, though, we should start with my title, The Enslaved Teen Who Cracked Vanilla's Secret. The first time I heard it, I did a double take. The Enslaved Teen Who Cracked Vanilla's Secret? Now, you might not associate a teenager with vanilla, because vanilla, in popular usage, has come to mean boring, run-of-the-mill, uh, ordinary. Pretty much counter to the associations we have of adolescence and its intensities and dramas. As for Vanilla's secret, I'm betting most of you didn't even know that Vanilla had a secret in the first place. So Vanilla connects the Atlantic, Indian Ocean, and Pacific worlds. In other words, Vanilla is many things. It's an entrancing perfume, a fluctuating cultural icon seen as both exotic and ordinary at once, as well as an instantly recognizable flavor. Some say, indeed, the world's most popular flavor. Vanilla, the humble bean that became the world's most popular flavor, also symbolizes some of the most important tectonic shifts in modern history. Institutional slavery and geopolitical economics on the one hand, and on the other, scientific discovery, social justice, and human invention. Today, every vanilla bean that you see on store shelves has been deftly pollinated by human hands. And we have an enslaved teenager to thank, because the method he discovered in 1841 is still used today the world over. We know his name, Edmund Albius. And Edmund, at age 12, living and working on the tiny, obscure Ile Bourbon, completely transformed the modest vanilla bean into the global commodity that it now is. Ile Bourbon now known simply as Réunion, is a small archipelago in the Indian Ocean, just over 700 kilometers east of Madagascar and nearly 200 kilometers southwest of Mauritius. Not exactly what you might picture as the birthplace of a world-altering invention. Like many brilliant inventions, Edmonds appears disarmingly simple, but only after the fact. What he did was discover a straightforward and efficient way of artificially pollinating the vanilla orchid in just a matter of seconds, using only a toothpick or a needle. Equally astonishing is the fact that he actually received credit for his method, despite several other botanists who tried to rob him of it. So this lecture tells the story of Edmund for the first time in detail, and it does so from original archival sources. Edmund was born in 1829, the son of Pamphile, his father, and of Mélise, his mother, who died giving birth to him. His parents were the property of Madame de Bellier-Beaumont, 
who owned an estate in the island's district of Sainte-Suzanne. The district of Sainte-Suzanne rests on the Ile Bourbon's lush northern coast, which is visited by winds that cross the Indian Ocean and soaked by precipitation when clouds collide with the island's mountainous barrier chain. Culminating at a staggering 3,000 meters, in other words, just over 10,000 feet, this magnificent massif is the result of ongoing volcanic activity. The island's rains and rich volcanic soils turn out to be absolutely perfect for vanilla cultivation. The Indian Ocean brought more than just trade winds and plants to the shores of the Mascarenes, the islands of Bourbon and Mauritius. The marine corridor from Madagascar to the Mascarenes was in fact a major slave trading route and featured its share of absolutely unimaginable tragedies. In 1761, a ship named the Utile ran ashore on the tiny, remote, and uninhabited Ile de Sable as it headed to sell its human cargo of 160 enslaved people from Madagascar to the Ile de France, uh, modern-day Mauritius, Bourbon's sister island. Only seven remaining women and an eight-month-old infant were found an astonishing 15 years later. They were taken to the Ile de France, where they were pronounced free. Archaeological evidence reveals that they'd survived the decade-and-a-half ordeal by drinking water from an improvised well and eating birds, eggs, sea turtles, roots, oysters, and fish. Now, Ile Bourbon lies 366 miles to the south of Tromelin. It was consummately multilingual, multicultural, and multi-faith. Enslaved people were brought there predominantly from Africa and Madagascar, then beginning in the 1820s and increasingly uh, by the 1840s and 50s, waves of Indian and then subsequently Chinese migration began arriving to toil as indentured laborers. It's impossible to trace the origins of Edmond's parents, Panfil and Melisse, but they almost certainly claimed both Malagasy, meaning from Madagascar, and continental African ancestry, possibly South Asian roots as well. Paradoxically, Bourbon's multiculturalism had the effect of reinforcing hierarchies, with plantation owners pitting some groups against others and encouraging denunciations of uprisings and escapes before they occurred. Enslaved people born on the island, known as Creoles, tended to occupy the top rungs of the ladder, serving as commanders of other slaves, skilled laborers, or heads of workshops. In 1834, when Edmund was five years old, his district of Sainte-Suzanne featured just over 4,500 enslaved individuals, with nearly half of them, 48.7% to be precise, Creole. Elsewhere, on the French uh, Caribbean sugar islands, darkness or lightness of skin tone determined a person's social position. However, on Bourbon, expertise, strength, skills, and creoleness served as the main criteria used to determine the price of an enslaved person at auction. The island's rugged, inaccessible interior with sheer cliffs forming natural fortresses enabled scores of intrepid women and men to escape enslavement. In some cases, they even established self-sufficient upland societies of maroons. This fact didn't stop slave owners from counting so-called maroon slaves in their registers, or even, for that matter, of selling them in absentia, a sign that owners regarded what they called marronage as a transient state, although authorities tended to distinguish between short-term petit marronage and long-term grand marronage. Tragically, as elsewhere, including at the Middle Passage itself, suicide constituted another frequent form of resistance. Arson was another. 
The picture gets more complicated from there because Il Bourbon wasn't merely divided into uh, two distinct groups of free whites on the one hand and unfree blacks on the other. In 1815, it counted 49,369 enslaved Africans in Malagasy, 14,481 white people, and 4,459 free people of color. The young Edmund would certainly have encountered black people who were not enslaved. Edmund's parents, Pamphile and Melise, witnessed profound transformations over the course of their lifetimes. The British occupied Bourbon between 1810 and 1815, briefly ending the slave trade. French rule marked its return, but its formal ending in French colonies in 1817, meaning the trade of enslaved people, not slavery itself, which Paris only finally abolished in 1848, meant that sales in the following decade were mostly of Creoles rather than newcomers. This said between 1817 and 1830, an illicit slave trade to Bourbon endured. Millies and Pamphile, Edmund's parents, also experienced climate-related disasters and epidemics. Successive droughts, followed by terrible cyclones, devastated the island in 1806 and 1807, triggering famine, riots, revolts, and repression. In the district of Sainte-Suzanne, the mortality rate increased by a staggering 130% in 1807. One source related that islanders, slave and free alike, were reduced to eating fern roots and grasses. In March 1807, Sainte-Suzanne's Municipal Council reported that 600 whites and 1,500 slaves in the district were suffering from famine and that guards murdered them as they started to organize. Several waves of cholera then ravaged Bourbon starting in 1815. As a result, in 1821, slave deaths spiked spectacularly in Sainte-Suzanne. Two more hurricanes in 1816 and 1829 accelerated soil erosion. Local officials reported the loss of cacao, coffee, nutmeg, and clove trees, while a new plague, uh, boll weevil, afflicted cotton plants. Edmund's parents, Melise and Pamphile, lived through all of this. Dramatic international shifts also shaped Bourbon at this same time. First came the British-led continental blockade of France in 1806, which crippled trade, then the British occupation of Bourbon between 1810 and 1815. Bourbon now turned to sugar. France, after all, had recently lost the world's top sugar producer of Saint-Domingue, modern-day Haiti, to revolution, and then Mauritius and the Seychelles to British annexation. France, therefore, needed sugar. So after 1815, sugar planting began on a large scale. Sugar production factories sprang up seemingly overnight in 1815, accompanied by a frenzy of mechanization. Cocoa, coffee, wheat, nutmeg, and cloves never fully recovered from the hurricanes of 1806 and 1807. Once renowned for its small plantations and crop diversity, indeed for its early environmental protectionism, Bourbon turned to intensive sugar monoculture. However, ominous clouds appeared on the horizon in the 1830s. So from the point of view of all these upheavals to the island, Edmund's discovery proved timely. In fact, in 1841, a local newspaper had predicted the inevitable collapse of our poor Bourbon sugar industry, calling for a return to subsistence crops to avoid ruin and famine. And it was that very year of 1841 then that Edmund made the discovery that bucked the monoculture trend. The vanilla he artificially pollinated requires undergrowth or forest to thrive, not a landscape of cane fields. One 19th century source suggests that vanilla's advent actually saved the island's soil. Prior to the cultivation of vanilla, contends this source, quote, 
30 years of soil-depleting monoculture had so deteriorated the land that sugar planters had come to rely on fertilizers. Parts of this line of thinking weren't new. Um, several Enlightenment-era philosophers had warned that, you know, this was unsustainable morally, environmentally, and economically, uh, that slave uh, sugar and coffee plantations simply uh, were not sustainable. Where did Edmund fit into the elaborate hierarchies typical of slave societies? He was a gardener, uh, a tiny subcategory of the so-called specialized enslaved group. Now, I know this is a problematic category, but it's also a term that avoids another even more troubling one, that of, quote, talented slave, uh, which has been used in sources since the 18th century. One historian of the Ile de la Réunion, Prosper Eve, argues compellingly that those enslaved on Bourbon acquired wide-ranging agricultural knowledge of multiple crops by virtue of the island's diverse output. Eve adds that even those usually protected from the harshest forms of labor, the women and men he refers to as, quote, talented slaves, occasionally had to help in the fields when the need arose. So although it's safe to deduce that on most days the young gardener Edmund probably enjoyed greater latitude than enslaved people who toiled in the fields, he was nonetheless exposed to occasional field labor of just this sort. Equally importantly, he likely discussed agriculture with enslaved adults, thereby adding practical know-how to his own botanical learning. Now, despite rubbing shoulders with enslaved people toiling in the fields, Edmund benefited from the relatively better material condition of so-called specialized enslaved workers. This was no homogenous group. In addition to gardeners, it included carpenters, shoemakers, bakers, blacksmiths, sugar and coffee technicians, wig makers, butchers, shopkeepers, millers, nannies, nurses, uh, midwives, and even translators. Literate and multilingual, slaves in this last category interpreted and translated for missionaries and converted fellow slaves. Some of these enslaved workers of missionaries on Bourbon even became the first writers and readers of Malagasy in the Latin alphabet. Now, it would appear that Edmund could not read, unlike these enslaved translators. Contrary to much of the southern United States, slave literacy was not prohibited by French law. And Edmund certainly knew the technical names of plants, not to mention the workings of the plants themselves. But the main piece of evidence suggesting that Edmund couldn't read or write comes from later in his life. In 1871, he married the 21-year-old Marie-Pauline Bassana. He and his bride both signed the register with an X. Now, many mysteries surround Edmund's childhood. One is how he became the gardener of uh, Mrs. Bélier Beaumont's brother, a man named Ferréol. If the latter is to be believed, Edmund became Ferrol's quote-unquote favorite. Yet it would seem that Edmund technically remained her property until France's 1848 Slave Emancipation Proclamation. Uncertainty over ownership was surprisingly widespread. There are numerous cases of enslaved people in the French Empire who were unclear as to who actually owned them. Others were the quote, common property of private companies or religious orders and a few even belonged to the colony itself. A rare snapshot of the Bélier-Beaumont estate in 1844 shows that the Bélier-Beaumont brother and sister together owned 20 slaves um, in 1844. Their lands, estimated at 400 square meters, grew sugarcane and manioc. Comparatively speaking, this was a very small estate. Nearby plantations listed hundreds of enslaved workers. 
The survey names Edmond last on the Billier estate register, and maybe that's a sign he was achieving some measure of celebrity. Columns record with jarring concision what mattered to the colonial authorities. They list Edmond as age 15, male, black, creole, with a height at a very specific 1.618 meters tall, which is to say 5.308 feet tall. Other sources help flesh out Edmond's portrait. A letter from a man named Mézières Le Pervenche, who was a botanist and justice of the peace in the district of Saint-Suzanne in 1853, suggests that although Edmund received no formal education, he quickly, quote, became involved with horticultural work and learned from his master to recognize flowers and their technical names, unquote. Edmund's master, Ferriol, provided additional details himself. Edmund assisted him in artificially pollinating several other plants, most notably one called Julifia, of the pumpkin family, as well as Cassia alata, commonly known in English as Candlebush. He was also his master, Ferriol Bellier Beaumont, who recounted the pivotal 1841 Eureka moment. Now, as a historian, I'm of course keenly aware of who wrote this story, but this is the only source we have. Quote, One day, as I walked with my faithful companion, I noticed that my only vanilla plant had produced a bean. I expressed surprise and brought it to his attention. He told me that he had pollinated the flower. I refused to believe him and walked on. But two or three days later, I saw a second pod growing near the first. He then repeated his assertion. I asked him how he had done it. He proceeded to execute the operation that everybody now does. The intelligent child had been able to discern in the same flower the male and the female organs and put them properly in contact with one another. Using a needle or a toothpick, Edmund had successfully placed the two organs of the orchid in contact in a gesture that has since become second nature to vanilla growers around the planet. If the withered flower stayed attached to the extremity of the embryo, added Ferreul Bellier Beaumont, then the operation had succeeded, and ten months to a year later, pods would grow. Here was a transparent and simple method, rapidly achieved with the help of only a needle. The language of Edmond's master in these preceding passages is significant. Edmond had gone from Ferreol's, quote, favorite to, quote, his faithful companion. What exactly did this mean? One historian, Megan Vaughan, has suggested that on neighboring Ile-de-France or Mauritius, quote, small-scale slave ownership sometimes necessitated a degree of identification, even intimacy between master and slave, unquote. The Beaumont estate certainly met these conditions with its modest number of bondage workers. However, as she goes on to show, identification, quote-unquote, didn't necessarily foster compassion. It might not surprise you to learn, therefore, that the Billy Beaumont family never freed Edmund. At any rate, the power inversion contained in the moment of discovery was palpable. Try as the master, Ferriol Bellier Beaumont, might to suggest his pumpkins and candle bush had served as inspiration, Edmund's discovery was not the fruit of any Socratic dialogue. After all, Ferriol had initially refused to believe Edmund's claim. The enslaved teen then proudly showed his master the technique, using clear pedagogical tools in what was nothing short of a revelation. Ferriol then proceeded to place an announcement in a local newspaper explaining the technique. However, his description proved too vague, and local planters came calling for greater details. Demand was such that Edmond went on tour, achieving something close to celebrity status. 
Ferreol Bellier Beaumont mentions that planters arranged for Edmund to visit their estates using, quote, very comfortable means of locomotion, to which he was not accustomed, he specified. This was likely a horse-drawn carriage or perhaps a sedan chair carried by fellow slaves. Edmund presented his pollination technique in person at several plantations, and one can just imagine the reaction of the audience members, and especially of enslaved onlookers, overhearing one of their own, a youngster age 12 at that, arriving by carriage before delivering a lecture on how to pollinate a recently introduced flower before local dignitaries and gardeners alike. They must have been transfixed. This was more than just breaking the glass ceiling. It was straining the shackles of slavery, shaking its very foundations. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode features Eric Jennings as he delivered the 2023 JHI Public Humanities at Large Lecture. The title of his talk, The Enslaved Teen Who Cracked Vanilla's Code. And the name of that teen? Edmund Albius, who in 1841, on the obscure island of Bourbon in the middle of the Indian Ocean, discovered a way to pollinate vanilla that's still in use today and which continues to have geopolitical resonance. It was an astonishing discovery, but maybe not entirely surprising. Now, although Edmund's story is unique, for enslaved people to possess botanical knowledge was not. On Bourbon, Maroons discovered the medicinal properties of many highland plants and shared their knowledge with those still enslaved. In the Americas, many plant varietals were introduced by enslaved Africans, and some of them managed to continue independent production of such crops. Also in the Western Hemisphere, enslaved Africans' proficiency at herbalism fused with indigenous American knowledge to generate rich homeopathic cultures. The enslaved both prospected for remedies and conducted experiments. Forms of slave knowledge overlaid on indigenous ones were, for example, influential in treating dysentery and for elaborating antidotes for poisonings. Such treatments in turn circulated between islands and continents, including rival colonial empires. Enslaved women were often their carriers. Some enslaved people not only achieved, but were actually credited with medical botanical breakthroughs. Such was the case of an enslaved man whose name comes down to us as Kwasi in 18th century Suriname. Informed in part by dialogue with indigenous healers, we know from Natalie Davis's work uh, that Crossy discovered the fever-reducing properties of a local tree. By the 1740s, he was healing fellow slaves with a concoction derived from its bark. Over time, settlers also began adopting the remedy, and in 1753, the Swedish naturalist Carl Linnaeus named the tree appropriately Crossia Amara. Crossy eventually gained freedom. 
Now, back in the Indian Ocean, on the Ile de France, later Mauritius, in the 1770s, the king's intendant, Pierre Poivre, entrusted the enslaved Bengali named Charles Rama with the post of head gardener at the very prestigious Pamplemousse Botanical Gardens. Poivre especially appreciated Rama's mastery of nutmeg, which he considered to be unrivaled amongst Europeans. Edmund's discovery does not exactly match those of Rama and Kwasi. Edmund's discovery wasn't strictly speaking medical, although vanilla was used for some treatments. He didn't bring know-how to Bourbon from afar, nor did he benefit from indigenous knowledge, nor was he affranchised uh, or liberated, in other words, for his achievement. The vanilla vine he pollinated wasn't native to Bourbon, just as most people weren't for that matter, as the previously uninhabited island was first visited only in 1613, and the first French settlement attempts occurred in 1638, only two centuries before Edmund's discovery. Yet Edmund's invention helped transform the vanilla economy, taking it from a niche Mexican spice to a global commodity. But neither of his masters, neither Ferriol Bellier Beaumont nor his sister, ever freed Edmund. One can speculate that they didn't want to lose the small number of enslaved laborers they had, or that they may have turned a profit off of Edmund's local notoriety, perhaps charging a fee for his presentations to other planters. But this is little more than informed speculation on my part. What we know for certain is that Edmund gained liberty through the second and final abolition of slavery, pronounced in Paris by the French Second Republic in 1848. The renamed Isle of Réunion, definitively shedding its royal connection to the Bourbons, received a new lead official, the Commissioner of the Republic, Joseph Sarda Garriga. On October 18, 1848, he published the earlier decrees from April of the same year, abolishing slavery once and for all in all French colonies. One local newspaper, which ran the proclamation, still featured a suddenly obsolete ad to rent out 15 enslaved workers. Once Edmund was finally freed, there was a new issue to resolve, his name. Until then, he was simply Edmund, the property of his masters. What he needed now was a surname. Surnames constituted potent symbols of freedom. Réunion's main newspaper in the early 1840s ran lists of those freed providing their age, profession, and rather solemnly, the surname he or she is taking. Even the phrasing leaves unclear the agency of the formerly enslaved in the process. Now, luckily, we have Edmund's 1848 Freedom Papers. They read, and I'm quoting verbatim here, Edmund, son of Pamphile and Melise, both deceased, presented himself, and after having been recognized by us, he received the surname and name of Albus Edmond. In an 1862 letter, his former master notes curtly that, quote, Edmund's freedom name is Albius. In other words, we still don't know how much input Edmund had into selecting his own surname. Now that surname, Albius, has led to much speculation because it derives from the Latin word for white. Some have associated the choice with the white flower of the vanilla plant that Edmund pollinated. Edmund knew the technical Latin names for plants, and this explanation therefore seems plausible, even, you might argue, empowering. However, others have interpreted the surname as an alienated denial of Edmund's blackness, or even as a kind of racial or racist prank. After all, the phrasing of the 1848 Freedom Document suggests that Edmund was assigned his last name with no input in the matter, as were thousands of other slaves emancipated on the island in 1848. 
Various rules made it clear that slaves were to be given surnames different from those of the whites on the island. To further complicate matters, the 1848 naming campaign faced a time crunch. A rush was on for those newly emancipated to participate in upcoming elections, and all voters required a family name to vote. So an unprecedented scramble to concoct surnames ensued. Some newly freed people ended up with names that referenced their new status, with one person taking on the surname affranchi, meaning emancipated. One Parisian document even recommended, quote, a system of new names with infinite variation created by interchanging the letters of certain randomly selected words. And so some ended up with neologisms, others with first names as family names, others place names, others still with names that former owners devised as deliberately odd, ridiculous, or insulting. Now, given Ferréol Bélier Beaumont's spirited defense of Edmund's discovery, it seems unlikely to me that he'd have sought to humiliate Edmund in such a manner. Once his full name was settled, Edmund Albius became known far, far beyond the world of colonial plantations. Edmund's discovery made its way into one of the greatest literary achievements of French culture. In Marcel Proust's 1920 uh, Guermantes Way, which is the second installment of his legendary seven-volume In Search of Lost Time, one of the characters seizes the opportunity of being served vanilla ice cream to show off his knowledge and pontificates at meal's end, quote, The flavor of vanilla which we tasted in this excellent ice cream you gave us this evening, Duchess, comes from the vanilla plant. This plant produces flowers which are both male and female, but a, a sort of solid wall set up between them prevents any communication. And so we could never get any fruit from them until a young Negro, a native of Réunion by the name of Albans, which, by the way, is rather funny uh, as a name, uh, since it means white, had the happy thought of using the point of a needle to bring the separate organs into contact, end quote. Now, this passage is typical of Proust's famous roman à clé style, involving the overlaying of a veneer of fiction onto recent history. It also, of course, accurately summarizes Edmund's discovery. But interestingly, for the usually historically punctilious Proust, the slave's name is spelt as Albans, which is another rendering of the Latin word for white. However, the, the, the error involved more than just a different Latin uh, rendition. A number of publications devoted to agriculture and botany misspelled Edmund's surname as Albans in this very same way over several decades. So Proust evidently drew his information from one of those sources. While some got his name wrong or others chuckled at it, others contested Edmund's discovery altogether. The earliest challenge was the most credible and came from uh, the neighboring island of Mauritius. There in October 1842, Wenceslas Bocher, the bohemian-born vice president of the local Society of Natural History, triumphantly declared that he'd overcome the, quote, overdevelopment of a membrane, unquote, in the vanilla flower, thereby uh, enabling its artificial pollination. Bocher mentioned that he'd utilized, quote, a slight incision to achieve his result. Within weeks, three different estates on Mauritius had begun producing vanilla. Had Bocher copied Edmund's method, after all, this was 1842, a year after Edmund's discovery, or discovered his own. Botanists have identified a similar tearing technique with a slight variation on the Elbrus method, as they describe it. In the absence of a detailed description of Boher's so-called incisions, it's impossible to determine the Czech botanist's inspiration with certainty. 
Boher's announcement came mere months after Albus's tour of plantations on Bourbon, in which the enslaved teen was asked to explain his technique to multiple audiences. News no doubt then circulated through the enduring ties between elite planter families of the two previously connected Mascarene islands. The next more far-fetched and ill-intentioned challenge to Edmund's claim originated closer to home. Ironically, the backlash against the reckless and profoundly unjust challenge produced the key body of printed evidence we now have about Edmund's discovery. Without it, Edmund's story might never have been told. Indeed, had the pride and sense of honor or commitment to the truth of, of slave owner Ferréol Bellier Beaumont not been set off in 1862, we wouldn't have the correspondence that establishes in minute detail Edmund's remarkable achievement. Even the 21 years of silence separating the 1841 discovery and the 1862 uh, debate that I'm about to present were heavy with consequences. Slavery abolitionists often enlisted stories of resilience, knowledge, and creativity from enslaved people. But there was no printed record of Edmund's discovery at the time from which they could draw. That spark then occurred in 1862, when Claude Richard, the director of Ile Bourbon's main garden, the Jardin d'État, brazenly denied Albius's discovery, dismissing it as fake news. As the main botanical authority on the island, and the past founder of the very first French-created botanical garden in continental Africa, Claude Richard and his colleague Joseph Bernier had put forward a vanilla pollination technique of their own, which had turned out to be a complete failure. And so, as you might expect, Claude Richard fits the mold of the consummate vengeful villain. Think of it, 21 years after the fact, he sought to deprive Edmund Albius of his discovery and claim it as his own. So he put forth two arguments. First, that he himself had slipped word of the technique to Edmund when Edmund was about eight or nine years old. Richard claimed without any proof to have known about the artificial pollination of vanilla since 1811 or 1815. His second argument, if you can call it that, was that in his words, quote, an ignorant child could not have made such a discovery on his own. Edmund's owner, Ferréol Bellier Beaumont, took immediate offense. His word was at stake. Bellier Beaumont also expressed sympathy, even admiration for Edmund in the correspondence that I consulted. And so Bellier Beaumont drew up a detailed rebuttal in the form of a December 1862 letter to the legal clerk and local naturalist and historian, a man named Eugène Volzy Foucault. In it, Bellier Beaumont described Edmund's botanical expertise, indeed his erudition. He rejected as preposterous the notion that Claude Richard could have whispered a secret to the young man and then failed to act on it himself for two decades. Bellier Beaumont also pointed out rightly that if artificial pollination were common knowledge, then why did the discovery elicit such widespread attention from local planters in 1841? The controversy over Claude Richard's attempt to uh, claim credit for Albus's discovery died down somewhat after Ferréol Bellier Beaumont witnessed Richard's reaction to his rebuttal. Bellier Beaumont regretted having brought shame to the man, quote, in his old age, and decided that Richard had somehow convinced himself of his own lie declaring, quote, let's leave him to his chimera. The matter had tested Ferriol Bellier Beaumont's dual ties to his white planter class fraternity and to his former slave, whom he knew to be the inventor of a new method. 
Still, Bélier Beaumont expressed satisfaction that in this popular new notice on the cultivation of vanilla, a local planter had recognized, quote, the truth by naming Albus as the proper inventor of the method that had brought fresh prosperity to Réunion, end quote. Twelve years after the abolition of slavery, uh, this description made no mention of Edmonds on free status at the time of the revelation, but it did spell out other aspects of his identity, saying, quote, We owe the discovery of the pollination of vanilla to Edmund, a Creole, the domestic and gardener of Monsieur Bollier Beaumont, residing in Saint-Suzanne. It is thanks to his discovery that we owe the increased culture of this plant, which had been previously sterile in the colony. Given the power imbalance, of course, it's remarkable that Albus's discovery wasn't stolen from him. He received tardy recognition, although no material compensation, for a discovery that completely transformed Réunion's economy. Although several individuals actually did plead in vain for monetary payment to him, including Bélier Beaumont himself. Edmund's portrait appears in the form of an engraving in Antoine Roussin's pantheon of great local figures and places, the 1863 installment of the Album de la Réunion. He is depicted there in a dignified pose, holding a vanilla flower in his left hand. The text reads simply, Edmund Albius, inventor of the artificial pollination of the vanilla plant. Roussin's remains the only reliable visual representation of Albius from his era. We do know that Edmund received copies of the engraving and was thankful for them. Ferréol Bélier Beaumont penned the following addendum to a September 21st, 1863 letter to a correspondent. Quote, Edmund asks me to have you kindly pass on to Monsieur Roussin his thanks for the lithographs. The ingenious inventor of the fecundation of vanilla was able to distribute copies of it to his friends and family, avid consumers of drawings and engravings like all black people. End quote. What are we to make of this sweeping generalization? Well, apart from the prejudice it reveals, it's also conceivable that in the era before widespread literacy for emancipated former slaves, a visual portrait resonated especially strongly with Edmund Albius's loved ones. However, despite the dual recognition of the pamphlet that I just described in the 1863 Roussin volume, resistance to the idea of an enslaved 12-year-old person of color making a major botanical discovery endured. The field was by then too crowded for others to claim the invention. Instead, new critics took aim at the improbability of Edmund's profile. Such allegations of fraud, copying, mimicry, or plagiarism took on special resonance in a colonial context. Their meaning was clear. A black teenager, an enslaved moreover, simply could not have knowingly, let alone scientifically, cracked the case. Edmund's contribution to botanical science wasn't the only battlefront his reputation faced. There were also some really disturbing literary uses of his discovery. In 1938, Georges Labour, a philosophy teacher and close friend of painter André Masson and poet Robert Desnos, as well as other surrealists, dedicated a novel to vanilla production. His novel Les Vanilliers begins in Mexico. The scene then shifts to a fictionalized Bourbon, an island presented as ravaged by deforestation. Edmund is introduced as an enslaved youngster fearing his master's temper. Bourbon's vanilla, in turn, is presented as cursed and, quote, sterile prior to 1841. However, in this novel, Edmund's discovery is associated with his puberty and specifically his interest in the young woman, Jeanette. While the two are playing, he breaks a tooth of her comb and decides to, quote, plunge it into the vanilla flower. 
Oh, now she too is a woman, exclaims Jeannette. Edmund then begins, quote, piercing each flower several times in all directions with the clumsiness of an ignorant insect, unquote. So here Edmund is denied his achievement, which is instead attributed to chance, clumsiness, even sexual aggression. Lambourg goes on to describe the frenzied piercing motion as nothing short of, quote, rape. Edmund somehow emerges with a reputation as, quote, a great seducer of white girls. In this novel teeming with surrealist-inspired dreams and allegories, the discovery of vanilla is rendered as a carnal and transgressive awakening. In Lamboul's narrative, rather than ushering in artificial pollination, Edmund's discovery oddly prompts local planters to introduce boatloads of hummingbirds to the island to fertilize vanilla. Hummingbirds occupy a special place in the surrealist bestiary and were not actually vanilla pollinators. At any rate, the, the net effect of this fictionalized version is to present Edmund's discovery as an accidental byproduct of teenage and stereotypically distorted black sexuality. Surrealism's penchant for sexualized readings, for impulsive action, and for the irrational completely subverts Edmund's deliberate, careful, and skillful operation. Clearly, Lamboul never took the time to try pollinating vanilla himself. Another rumor about the 1841 discovery runs as follows. Edmund was allegedly rebellious and clumsy. After being, quote, reprimanded for by his master, he trampled a vanilla flower in vengeful rage, leading to its, quote, involuntary fecundation. A 2012 young adult novel has Albius mashing vanilla in frustration after seeing a fellow slave being raped. Each of these versions flouts botanical common sense. The albius maneuver undertaken with a needle or a toothpick is extraordinarily delicate, I've tried it myself, and cannot be achieved either through the stabbing described by Lamboul or by stomping of any kind. So much for the attempts to discredit Edmund Albius, both in history and fiction. His actual life post-discovery proved arduous, despite his method achieving global success. In the wake of the 1848 abolition, many former slaves, including Albus, moved to the island's only city, Saint-Denis. There, in 1851, three short years after emancipation, he worked for a certain Captain Marchand as a cook and a gardener. His employer soon accused him of stealing silver bracelets, a necklace, and a box of seashells. A court then sentenced Edmund to five years of forced labor. After three years, he obtained early release for good behavior, perhaps partly on the basis of his discovery. He then returned to the village of Saint-Suzanne to live on the plantation where he'd previously been enslaved. There in 1880, Edmund Albius died in relative poverty in the dwindling village. The qualifier relative is based on a recent find on the Ile de la Réunion's archives. It would appear that through his marriage to Marie-Pauline Bassana in 1871, Albius became co-landowner and did not perish in utter squalor as had previously been assumed. Now, the broad contours of Edmund's discovery were known in the early 20th century, as the Proust passage reminds us. Yet his reputation remained somewhat confined. Even on Réunion, one was sadly hard-pressed to find memorials to him prior to the 1980s. I've uncovered a few references to a portrait of Albius that hung on Réunion's Chamber of Agriculture walls with a description that matches the Roussin portrait. In 1923, the portrait was sent to Madagascar to be displayed at the island's first commercial fair. There, the local press described Edmund as, quote, a benefactor to humanity. Two decades later, a July 1945 article in a Réunion newspaper highlighted that not a single plaque or monument had been erected 
in Albius's honor, only the same solitary depiction of him still graced the walls of the Chamber of Agriculture. Since then, Edmund uh, has achieved some local fame on Réunion as a middle school there now bears his name. But beyond the shores of an island in the, in the French Indian Ocean, I'd argue that he's all but unknown. A monument to Edmund Albius sits just outside the coastal community of Saint-Suzanne. It was initially inaugurated in December 2004 and featured a solitary statue of Albius, clearly inspired by the Roussin print. A photo of the unveiling shows Paul Vergès, a key figure in local Réunion politics, resting his hand on the shoulder of Edmund Albius's likeness. Vergès was a communist president of the island's regional council, as well as a senator in Paris. He never tired of invoking Albus, quote, the slave who made a great discovery for Réunion and was never rewarded by his masters, end quote. Then in 2021, the solitary statue was enhanced. Another artist designed a frame for it, covered it in depictions of vanilla vines. On the eve of uh, the day commemorating the definitive ending of slavery on Réunion, students from Edmund Albius Middle School were enlisted to inscribe local meaning in Creole uh, to Edmund on individual stones, which they then deposited at his feet. Edmund has, in other words, been reinvented as a champion and vector of Creole identity. Edmund's method, uh, meanwhile, had an immediate impact. In 1877, three years before his passing, and thanks to his discovery, the island of Réunion surpassed Mexico's production, becoming the world's greatest vanilla producer. 37.94 tons for Réunion versus 25.37 tons for Mexico. Réunion seldom looked back before in turn being passed up by Tahiti and then Madagascar around the turn of the 20th century. In a remarkably short span, Vanilla went from being a Mexican monopoly to a French colonial crop. Today, Edmund's method is all the more vital because vanilla's natural pollinators are scarce and wild vanilla increasingly rare. Every vanilla bean you can find in shops has been hand pollinated, and the vast majority of it has been done using Edmund's method, the very same one he discovered when he was 12 years old. However, and this is a big however, a staggering 99% of so-called vanilla in commercially available foods isn't vanilla at all. The vanillin molecule can be very effectively produced synthetically. Here in Canada in 1952, the Ontario Paper Company started transforming pulp paper waste, that's right, pulp paper waste, into vanillin for the food and pharmaceutical industries. In 1964, the company announced that its new manufacturing process at a plant near St. Catharines, Ontario, could generate 3,000 pounds, about 1.36 metric tons, of chemical vanilla in a year. As I tell students, unless you see the words natural Madagascar, Mexico, Tahitian vanilla on a label, there's a very good chance you're ingesting a substance composed mostly of alcohol, and that's in the very best of cases. But for anyone using the real thing, then all the more reason that we should all be thankful to Edmund Albius. Thank you very much. After Eric's talk, there was still a bit of time left. Just enough for me to ask a few follow-up questions. I really was struck by the fact that you said early on in your lecture that this is the first time, this lecture is actually the very first time his story has been told in detail. 
Can you speak to what accounts to the fact that it's taken so long to get his story into one coherent whole? It's a good question, and I'm not sure I have a great answer in as much as it, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, local historians abound. There's a great many historians on Réunion who've studied everything from coffee to the island's fate in the 19th and 20th century. There are mentions, of course, of Edmund, um, but there really hasn't been a detailed portrait. The documentary has alluded to him. There's this middle school that bears his name. But overall, there absolutely has not been a biography of him. And it really is staggering when, when you think of the impact that this enslaved teenager has had on the global economy of vanilla. Um, what's most troubling to us today is, of course, this sort of surfacing of stereotypes of black sexuality being at the root of this discovery and then denying the possibility that this was a scientific discovery. Edmund was a scientist. He wasn't a formally trained one, but he was certainly a botanist and a darn good one by all accounts. What do you think accounts for the fact that Edmund received not just the recognition that he did at the time, but the enduring recognition despite all those challenges that you outlined? Well, he does and he doesn't, right? I mean, there's no stamp to Edmund. There's, uh, he's not mentioned in books. He's not mentioned in film. I mean, this would be a great movie story. He would. Uh, but at the same time, yes, his, his uh, achievement was not stolen from him. And as I say, it's really counterintuitive given how many charges there were against him. I, I listed several different attempts to steal this invention from him. I only listed a couple. There's actually many more. Um, and each time uh, they were rebuffed. And there's this very bizarre dynamic of Ferréol, his former master, uh, standing up for him. Now, Ferréol also has self-interest in this, mm -hmm. right? He's standing up for himself as well because he's wrapped himself up in this prestige yes. through this story. So the, there's many motivations at work. Yeah. Uh, but it really is astonishing that this wasn't stolen from him, including by people who were really in the establishment. Richard is uh, a world-famous botanist. Mm -hmm. Edmund is uh, an unknown enslaved teen. And if you happen to be wondering how the term vanilla ever came to mean boring, ho-hum, or dull, here again is Eric Jennings with his own pet theory. Vanilla was available in, in small quantities since in Europe, for instance, since the 16th century, right? Um, so Madame de Pompadour uses it as an aphrodisiac, interestingly, quite the opposite of the idea of bland sex. On the contrary, the Marquis de Sade uses it as an aphrodisiac. Um, so it goes from being an aphrodisiac to something that means bland sex. And incidentally, it only means that in English, right? It doesn't mean it in Spanish. It doesn't mean it in Mandarin. Uh, it really is an English-specific thing. Um, I've got my own theory as to why this is. It's tied to a variety of trends in the United States. In the 19th century, vanilla starts to go into Coca-Cola. We know this because the early recipes we have show vanilla flavoring to offset the bitterness of the, the, the cola. Um, but it also becomes a staple at the soda fountain. And uh, my reading of this is that it becomes synonymous with bland for several reasons. One is the late 19th century sees the rise of the synthetic stuff, which is totally uniform, fairly bland. Also, the late 19th century sees the rise of this soda fountain where you would have several flavors. Indeed, same with ice cream, right? You'd have sort of vanilla and chocolate or vanilla and strawberry. And vanilla starts to become in an Anglo-American, but especially North American context, synonymous with bland or nothingness, right? Um, and so that may account for this usage. The, the, it's clearly used um, as a literal term of plain vanilla, 
throughout the late 19th century into the early 20th century. The first allegorical use I found of vanilla meaning bland actually doesn't come in the realm of sexuality. It comes in the 40s in a reference to a plain vanilla foreign policy. Um, so you start to get these references to vanilla meaning bland or dull or heteronormative or any number of meanings that are now associated with, with that adjective. But again, I want to stress, it's not true in German, it's not true in French, it's not true in most other languages. It seems to be specific to the English language. So if you could travel back in time and speak to Edmund, what would you ask him? In a sense, I would ask him about his inspiration um, because what Edmund does is he looks at a plant that millions of other people have looked at and for the first time thinks of a way of putting two parts together that have simply not been put together before. Now, this has not happened in Central America where this plant has grown for hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, in fact. Um, and so he literally has a new way of thinking about the plant. And I did say in my lecture that it seems disarmingly simple after the fact. You know, you, you, you press down this, this membrane with a toothpick and then delicately sort of raise one part while tilting the other one down. By the way, this is tricky stuff. It takes about 20 seconds for those who know how to do it. I ruined a good five orchids before getting it right. So it's tricky stuff, but it, it, it's literally a new way of thinking about this plant, what he did. Um, nobody else had done it before. Now, there is another wrinkle to this, which is that in uh, 1836, five years earlier, a Belgian scientist by the name of Charles Morin also invents a method to pollinate vanilla. However, it's in Liège. He has one vanilla vine. It's not a tropical context. He keeps his method secret. And from what I've been able to read, it involves a microscope and tiny scissors. And it takes probably 20 minutes. Um, and so it's not at all the same method. Um, you know, one source suggests you have to first water it, then put it on the microscope, then proceed a number of, you know, very convoluted steps. So others are working on this, and nobody's cracked it in the same simple way. And so what I want, what I want to ask Edmund Elvius is simply, how did it come to you? Uh, was it a matter of seeing this pumpkin-like plant, which has a very different pollination process? This project has led me to dialogue with botanists and geneticists and people I wouldn't ordinarily <laughs> think of contacting. It's, it's quite different from those other plants. It's in fact radically different. So how did he come up with it? What was the inspiration? You were listening to Eric Jennings deliver his talk, The Enslaved Teen Who Cracked Vanilla Secret. It was presented in conjunction with the Jackman Humanities Institute. Special thanks to the technical staff at Innes Town Hall at the University of Toronto. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.